Thanks for downloading our podcast. You can find out more about Tech Tent from our webpage. Go to bbc.com slash programmes slash Tech Tent. Hello and welcome to Tech Tent, your weekly status update on the technology industry. I'm Rory Catlin-Jones and joining me this week from the BBC Tech News website are Zoe Kleinman. Hello. And Joe Miller. Hello. And our very special guest is Ismail Ahmed, founder and CEO of World Remit, a company specialising in the increasingly competitive business of sending money overseas. Hello, Ismail. Hello. We'll be talking to you about the transformative impact of mobile tech in Africa and uh, a lot of other stories. Here's a taste of what we've got for you this week. We'd absolutely love to have Taylor Swift back on the service. And, you know, we'll continue to work to do that for our users and for the fans. Mobile technology in Kenya is huge. And you use your phone for internet. And that has really spurred business. There is no algorithm for important. Stay tuned for that and more. Now, first up this week. Because, baby, now we got bad blood. You know it used to be mad love. So take a look what you've done. Because, baby... That's uh, Taylor Swift and Bad Blood from her new album, 1989. And there's plenty of bad blood between her and the streaming service Spotify after she withdrew all of her music. The decision by probably the world's leading recording artist to shun the new model of streaming music has sent shockwaves through the industry this week. Uh, We've got an exclusive interview with Spotify in a moment on the Taylor Swift crisis. But while its row with a superstar was unfolding, the subscription music market was suddenly getting a whole lot more competitive. YouTube, already used by many millions to watch music for free, has unveiled a new paid service. I went along to the London offices of Google, which owns YouTube, to get a preview of the new service with a small group of journalists. So YouTube's music service... Well, look, pretty familiar to people who've used it before. They say it's the biggest platform in the world. What's different now is that there's going to be a paid version without adverts because the way it works at the moment, you can't watch a legitimate track that's been uploaded by the music label onto YouTube without first watching an advert because that's how they make money. Uh, Let's have a look, see what's on here. Taylor Swift, she's been in the news. I've just searched for her album, 1989. It's not there. There's a lot of Taylor Swift, but it's things like videos of her appearing on talk shows. There are a couple of tracks that have been put up there by Vivo, the um, the music label's service. So that's that's one song. So the other, the key feature, I suppose, of a paid service is that you can take the music with you. You can um, download it to the device. You can take it offline. So when you haven't got a connection, you can still watch it. So, for instance, here's a Beyonce track that I've taken offline the the key thing here is you have to download the video as well as the album so uh, that is going to take up quite a lot of space on your device Beyonce, I were a boy what immediately strikes me is this will be fine for people used to using YouTube as a way to look at music videos perhaps not quite so useful for people who want an all purpose app uh, where they're not looking at videos, they just want their music with them wherever they go without having to download a video. And they maybe also want to incorporate their other music that they've downloaded from other services. That you can't do at the moment. 
I have to say, Beyonce, not necessarily my, my personal choice, but uh, that's by the way. So another new streaming service, and the competition may make artists bolder in demanding more revenues from the market leader Spotify. As we've heard, Taylor Swift has taken all her music off the service, de- declaring, I'm not willing to contribute my life's work to an experiment that I don't feel fairly compensates the writers, producers, artists and creators of this music. And there's been a war of words over just how much she was earning. Uh, I asked Mark Williamson, Spotify's Director of Artist Services, for his side of that story. We've actually paid out around about $2 million globally for all of Taylor Swift's dreams in the last 12 months. And we were actually paying out around $500,000 per month globally for Taylor Swift's music before she pulled her catalogue off. And we've looked at the trend and, and, and how much someone like Taylor is earning from Spotify. And we would have expected over $6 million in royalty payments to be paid out for her catalogue over the next 12 months. And that's without even taking into account her new album, which wasn't on the service. So $6 million is a lot of money to be paying out. And we expect actually by the end of next year to be doubling that kind of money. But it's not just the top artists that are making those million dollar checks. In a lot of places, Spotify is either the number one or the number two source of revenue for the music industry. We're the fastest growing source of of revenue for the industry and we're the biggest driver of growth. Is Taylor Swift then being greedy? You know, I think one of the great things about Spotify is that you can choose whether to put your music onto Spotify or not. Now, what we've actually seen is the opposite to happening. We've seen this a bit of an edge case. So bands like Pink Floyd, like Led Zeppelin, are coming onto the service. And, you know, we feel that the amount that we're paying out is really helping the industry and it's helping artists. Certainly, when you compare that to the amount of money that was being generated by free services and by piracy prior to Spotify, the answer was zero. So is she being greedy? I think, you know, Taylor has talked, uh, you know, a number of reasons why she's taking it off. And that's not us to, to talk to that. What we do know is that she has 16 million people who listen to her music on Spotify in the last month. And, you know, they would love for Taylor Swift to have her music on Spotify. How damaging has her departure been and, and the disquiet raised by not just her, by quite a number of pretty major artists over the last year? Well, you know, we, we have a service which offers um, users access to, you know, almost all of the music in the world. And so, you know, we want to have as full a catalogue as possible. But at the same time, there are still millions of artists on Spotify. There's 20,000 new songs added daily. And how and many so, of them are actually making a living? Most of them are, are not making a living off Spotify, are they? They're making tiny amounts. Well, I think across the music industry, it is difficult for a lot of people to make money. But that's not just an issue with Spotify. That's because what has happened is that so much of the money that used to come into the industry has been decimated by piracy and by free listening services that don't pay royalties. Sure, not every single artist can make millions from Spotify. But there are a huge number of artists where Spotify is an increasing part of their bottom line. 30, 40, 50% of the checks coming in every single month. Are you trying to win Taylor Swift back and do you think you'll succeed? We'd absolutely love to have Taylor Swift back on the service. She's on 20 million playlists or she was on 20 million playlists on the service. So we'd absolutely love to have her back um, and you know, we'll continue to work to do that for our users and for the fans. Now the wider landscape has got more competitive this week with YouTube launching a paid service. That's going to put more power in the hands of artists, isn't it? They're going to be able to come to you and say, well, we're getting this from YouTube. Maybe we're going to get something else from Apple. Up your rates. Well, I think this is one of the actually one of the most exciting things about the music industry. Nowadays, you have so many different ways to get your music out there from streaming services, direct to fans, still selling CDs at gigs. And so the more people and the more companies that come in and the more people that, you know, want to create a subscription service and drive revenue in that way, we think that's a really good thing. It gives artists choice and it introduces more revenue into the industry, which is going to benefit us all. 
So that's Mark Williamson from Spotify. Uh, Joe Miller from uh, BBC Tech Desk. Um, is streaming really uh, a whole new business model for the industry, which is going to be the saviour after years of digital decline? Well, it's hard to say that, really. I mean, we tend to talk about these things when someone like Taylor Swift pulls their music, but really the story isn't about the big superstars. It's about the smaller artists. And for them, things haven't changed very much. It's very, very difficult to make money out of recorded music. And um, they wouldn't pull their music off at a place like Spotify because they get even less money than than they would get uh, you know, through streaming services. So for, for most artists, for most musicians, um, the economics of, of, of uh, the recording industry have stayed the same, really. Yeah, it it does it does appear that this the pain felt during the digital revolution by artists isn't really being lessened that much by these new streaming services. Well, let's move on. The technology that really has transformed our lives over the last few years has been the mobile phone, especially since phones became the gateway for many to the internet. But new research shows that they've been more life-changing in developing countries in Africa than in say the UK. A survey by a firm called On Device Research asked people in Kenya, South Africa and Nigeria about the impact of the mobile internet on them and then compared their views with those of people in Britain. Alistair Hill of On Device told me what they found. There were around 15 different behaviours which actually had a great improvement of people's lives in Africa. And this is compared to just two different types of behaviours that people do on their phone in the UK that had the same effect. In Africa, the things which were really interesting was the freedom of access to information. And so that could have been things like access to jobs information, access to healthcare information, access to education. Uh, Also, mobile money had a huge impact. Whereas in the UK, the only thing that had a really startling effect was actually maps. People are stopping getting lost because of the mobile internet, which is really improving, well, definitely my life and hopefully yours as well. But it doesn't actually change people's lives. Whereas in Africa, it had a fantastic game-changing impact on this access to information. Alistair Hill of On Device Research there. Now with us, we've got Ismail Ahmed, founder of World Remit, an idea which came to him when he was studying in London and wanting to to send money home. Ismail, we've just heard how important the mobile internet is in Africa. Uh, Do people in the West tend to underestimate uh, the way in which Africans are using technologies that are put to maybe more frivolous use elsewhere? Uh, Definitely. Um, We... Many of the services uh, we obtain offline here in the West are becoming available uh, through uh, mobile in in, in Africa. So you have uh, obtained information on pricing, healthcare, uh, weather, uh, which are available through mobile and and, and money transfer. So people are doing a lot of things through the mobile. And so in countries like Kenya, you have uh, 43% of the GDP going through uh, and pesa wallet. So that, that, that's Through their, their mobile money their, scheme, which has been mobile, groundbreaking. Yes, yes. And, 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 and in fact, through the process, shifting a large percent of the informal economy to the formal economy, a measure economy. The same with uh, Zimbabwe again, which uh, EcoCash, a new mobile wallet, is currently account to, uh, accounts for something like a third of the GDP in uh, Zimbabwe. So, so hugely transformative uh, in, in the way these uh, uh, mobile devices are. Uh, and and in terms of you know, we're, there's a lot of talk about the cashless society in, yes. in places like Somaliland. Yep. Uh, which I think is yes. is your uh, your your, your home homeland, yeah. um, uh, an autonomous region of Somalia. Um, they're closer to being a cashless economy than than um, than a lot of places. Is that right? 
Yes, you can find someone who hasn't touched cash at all for a year. So this is the closest uh, economy to what we call a cashless, uh, because the wallet payment is accepted universally. So whether you want to buy a banana from from a market stall or whether you want to pay your shop, even someone who doesn't have a mobile. Uh, can't accept a payment because they give you the mobile of a, of a shop and, and, and there's a way to confirm the payment, yes. So look to Africa for the future of money, perhaps. Uh, this is Tech Tent on the BBC World Service. Still to come, the African and Middle Eastern businesswomen sharing knowledge and ideas with their Californian counterparts. And are we any clearer on the digital future for newspapers and magazines? Now, on Tuesday this week, a new record was set for the amount of money spent in online shopping in one day. Why? Because it was Singles Day in China. What's that? Well, it's a relatively new holiday that was invented a few years ago to give unmarried people an excuse to spoil themselves a little. That day has now come to encapsulate the overwhelming growth of internet shopping in China. The country's biggest online shopping platform, Taobao, owned by Alibaba, logged more than 278 million orders in a single day. An awful lot of shopping. Uh, Our correspondent in Beijing, Celia Hatton, wanted to see what happened after those orders were placed. On November 11th, Chinese shoppers purchased $9 billion worth of products online in a single day. I'm at a courier delivery hub in Beijing to witness the result of that buying frenzy. There are hundreds of workers here anxiously scanning addresses. And when they spot a package that's destined for their designated spot in Beijing, they grab it from the belt and toss it over their shoulder. I need to keep my eyes open to dodge packages that are flying through the air from all directions. The courier company's boss, a man named Lan Bu Shi, looks tired. On a normal day, we handle 7 million packages, and now, suddenly, it's gone up to more than 20 million a day. That definitely means we have to work overtime, so we're running 24 hours a day, non-stop. Hundreds of trucks leave the courier hub and fan out across the city. Some of the truck's parcels end up with this man, a local courier named Yang Hua. So he's just telling me that, Mr. Young's telling me that he, he can only eat, he only can take a break to eat after he delivers all his packages. Mr. Young's on a tight schedule. He runs from office to office dropping off boxes. He gets paid one yuan, or approximately six cents, for each successful delivery, which doesn't add up to much, he tells me. I make just enough money to provide food for my family. He's got two children, one is 20 and one is five. And when he talks about the five-year-old, his, his face just breaks into a big smile. Okay, so now we're just taking the stairs because it's just faster than going on the elevator. Oh, we're in a really dark stairwell. You know, there's a reason Mr. Young is so thin. It's quite obvious. He just spends his whole day running and hauling around a massive bag of packages. Finally, the last delivery in this building to a young woman. Mr. Young says most of his deliveries are to women in their 20s. They're the ones who do most of China's online shopping. This woman's overjoyed to receive a new plastic mobile phone holder. 
I ordered a lot of things for Singles Day, but I haven't received most of them yet. And off he goes. And with that, Mr. Young rushes out of the building and over to his delivery bicycle to retrieve the next round of packages. No time to stop while China's eager online shoppers are at their computers placing new orders. Celia Hatton in Beijing. Now, let's uh, move on. We've got to round up a couple of other of the week's main stories. That's a trailer for the latest Assassin's Creed game, Unity, out this week. Uh, but Zoe Kleinman, the release hasn't quite gone to plan. No, there's a popular fairy tale about a princess who has to kiss a frog. And it seems to have inspired uh, Ubisoft, the publishers of Assassin's Creed, because there are characters in the game who have these very weird green faces and big bulging eyes. And the reason is that the graphics aren't quite working and players are starting to report very widespread glitches of really quite odd-looking things going on. Uh, terrible quality control problems. And uh, I've seen someone's just posted a, a still from the titles to the game in which it, it gives a credit to a worldwide control, a quality control director. It misspells worldwide, which is not, not a particularly good sign. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, uh, Joe Miller, trouble for Twitter. A year after its frenzied debut on the, uh, on the New York Stock Exchange, it's, uh, it's failed a financial health check. Uh, Yes, Rory. One major um, ratings agency in the US has downgraded investments in Twitter to what's known as junk, which basically means that they don't think they're going to return a profit anytime soon. Um, And of course, it's sent Twitter's shares down about 6%. uh, But it shouldn't really be that surprising because Twitter hasn't made a profit yet at all, ever. It's never made Uh, one, Never made a profit. Not a a penny. Not a penny. Um, And it's recently reported that timeline views, which is how long people spend um, on Twitter, have declined. Um, But um, I think one thing that's worth bearing in mind is that the, the health of a of a tech firm isn't necessarily measured in profits amazon which is gigantic and you know no one no one doubts its success uh, hardly ever turns a profit so uh, you know time will tell whether twitter is a success or not yes amazon has managed to defy the markets and uh Refuse to deliver profits for many years. Maybe Twitter can do the same. Now, one interesting aspect of the tech revolution is that women are playing a bigger role in the developing world than in places like the US and UK. Uh, Over 70 women from Africa and the Middle East have just wrapped up a month-long visit to Silicon Valley with the aim of picking up ideas for technologies they can use to tackle their country's challenges when they return home. Alison Van Diggelen met two of them. They are two women with ambitious missions. Meet Asal Ibrahim. She wants to bring massive deployment of solar power to Jordan. And Sarah Kahiyu from Kenya. She wants to jumpstart the science and tech economy in Africa by developing a network of hands-on science museums across the entire continent. I start by asking Kahiyu about the current state of technology in Kenya. Mobile technology in Kenya is huge. It has come, it's like magic because you can do transactions, money transactions on your mobile. You can pay someone from wherever in the country. You can pay your school fees, you can pay your bills. And that one has revolutionized life in Kenya. And you use your phone for internet. And that has really spurred business because people, you can advertise your products on Facebook get someone to pay you through M-Pesa, and then you put the stuff on, your, on the public transport system and it is transferred to your, you know, to your client. And that has made it so easy, especially for people like farmers. They can sell their stuff when they are still in the farm. That never used to happen. So you cut off the middleman, and meaning all the profit. The farmer gets all the profit. 
We discuss her grand vision of creating a network of hands-on science and tech centres across Africa, starting in Juja, Kenya, a university town she describes as having the same vibe as Silicon Valley. We need to embrace more technology because uh, 60% of, of you know, Africans and, and I think youth in Kenya are under 35. That means we have all this bulge of youth who are not employed. And I believe science and technology is the last frontier for job creation. We import 80% of whatever you're using in Kenya. We import it. Why not make it in Kenya? If the governments of Africa invest in, uh, in science and technology and put it in its pedestal as, a, you know, as an accelerator of development and youths are encouraged to start companies. So you feel it needs uh, an entrepreneurship spirit? Yes. Kick-started? Yes, to kick-start it. There, there is the need for that entrepreneurship. Asal Ibrahim is a 24-year-old student from Amman, Jordan. She's been working at a solar company in Silicon Valley, soaking up the can-do attitude. Jordanian youth are very into technology and they can contribute a lot if they get the chance. We have a lot of international companies that have offices in, in Jordan and employ a large amount of engineers like Microsoft, Sony, uh, Yahoo. Ibrahim's goal is to encourage the massive deployment of solar power in Jordan, but she faces an uphill struggle. Because it's not easy to push this kind of alternative power and challenge the big oil companies. So we have to combine all the manpower we have, all the technology, knowledge and NGOs and advocates to make this happen. It's a dream that needs to be worked on in a national level. 97% of our energy is imported. So if any of the surrounding countries that provide us with oil, for example, or electricity have bad political situations, which is the case most of the times, we will be out of energy. That's Asal Ibrahim from Amman in Jordan, ending that report from Alison Van Diggelen. Uh, Ismail Ahmed, our, our special guest, what's your take on women in tech in Africa in particular? I think women do better in uh, lead startups. And in a lot of African uh, uh, technology businesses, you have uh, situations where, which require bootstrapping, uh, mastering uh, frugality. And, and I, I think that's where uh, women in Africa do better than men. And hence you have a lot of uh, women involved in uh, startups. And culturally, they get, they're getting access to funds okay? In the funding is as difficult as it is, as it is here. Uh, but, uh, but the fact that uh, we don't have a lot of uh, uh, venture capital funds uh, throwing a lot of money into technology means that uh, women do, uh, tend, tend to do better in the, uh, in the lean startups, yeah. We must move on. Now, a, a very worrying question. Are journalists and editors going to be replaced by computers? Surely not. Uh, I ask because there are now all sorts of digital platforms that scoop news off the web, decide what's important and republish it in easily digestible formats. Among them is Flipboard, a popular app for tablets and smartphones, which claims it has 100 million readers. Uh, I spoke to Mike McHugh, Flipboard's founder, who's just launched what's called a daily edition on the app, and I asked him what that is. 
The Daily Edition is packaged by uh, 20 or so curators uh, who operate around the world for Flipboard. And these are folks who have an eye for good news. And um, they're journalist um, students. Um, they're um, they're know, students. Folks, they're not they're, actual journalists. Well, so that some of them are. Some of them are learning. Some of them, they're, uh, they're all pretty experienced uh, with a good eye for news. And um, we look at pulling together from our partners' content uh, the best articles that map to the news of the day and bring that all together in a single package that's delivered at 7 a.m. for our readers in different regions in the world. And, uh, and so we'll feature articles from our partners um, that, that will talk, go deep on, for example, Ebola. Uh, and offer different perspectives on it, you know, more of a global perspective, um, more of a domestic perspective. Isn't that going down a difficult road for you at the moment? Like, uh, well, I mean, the accusation about the likes of Google and and Facebook was that they don't really want to be media media companies. There's an awful lot of responsibility with being a media company. Um, People want to regulate you. People want to argue with you. People want to say you're biased. Right. You're, You're going down that road, aren't you? To a certain extent, you know, we hear some of those arguments that just comes with the, the terrain. You know, I think that there's there's a very important role to play across the world of all of the publishers that is both algorithmic and technology-based as well as more curatorial. The second you make a human judgment call, then yes, it can be debated. Um, but I think that, you know, in today's world, you know, if you only relied on the algorithms, you'd be looking at stuff about Justin Bieber all day long. You know, you don't want to uh, have that as the only content. You want to be able to, you know, read about what's happening with very important topics that, that aren't as sexy in the headlines. So there's a lot of depression in, in, in the journalistic profession at the moment. Uh, I speak as a 33-year veteran. Are you saying that maybe we shouldn't be so depressed that the algorithm in the final analysis isn't as important as the journalist? That is absolutely right. I think journalism's best days lie ahead of us. Uh, there is a, a huge amount of importance on people uh, both to create the content and to curate. There is no algorithm for important. And you can hear more of that interview with Mike McHugh on In the Balance here on the BBC World Service tomorrow. Joe Miller, a much younger journalist than me, um, do you see trends out there that worry you about your future in this business, uh, clever new algorithms that are going to replace you? Uh, yeah, well, it's all very well to have Mike's reassurance over there, but um, Flipboard doesn't charge, and, and neither do many of these amalgamators. And I'm more reassured by models like um, Blendl, which is a Dutch firm that the New York Times and a German um, publisher called Axel Springer put a lot of money into, which has been described as the iTunes of journalism, where you pay per article. So there's you, you choose what you want to read in the morning, and you pay 20p or something like that for each piece you want to read. And that uh, sets my mind at rest slightly more than things like Flipboard. Yes, well, it would be reassuring to see uh, some viable paid models for journalism emerging on the internet. We are running out of time. Uh, Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, Thanks to our special guest, Ismail Ahmed of World Remit, and to Zoe Kleiman and Joe Miller. And join us again in the Tech Tent at the same time next week.